everyone and welcome back to the Genie Podcast. If you are new around here, my name is Selma and I am the host of The Genie, a podcast that aims to change the way we think about science and genetics. So today we've got a really special episode lined up for you. We've had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Amran Mayer, who is a gastroenterologist and the executive director of the G. Oppenheimer Center for Neurobiology of Stress and Resilience and is the co-director of the Digestive Disease Research Center at the University of California at Los Angeles. Dr. Mayer is also a award-winning author. He wrote a book you may have heard about called The Mind-Gut Connection. In today's episode, we are going to be talking about the contents of this book and trying to understand how the connection between our brains and our bodies is crucial for determining health and what we can do to make our gut health better. So if that sounds like something you're interested in, please stick along and listen to to today's episode. So without further ado, let's get started. Hello, Dr. Mayer, and welcome to The Genie. It's great to have you on the show today. I've already introduced you briefly in our opening, but could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your work? Yeah, first of all, thank you, Salma, for having me on your podcast. Um, it's really a pleasure to um, looking forward to this conversation. So my um, my background is I'm a professor at, um, at UCLA, a Division of Digestive Diseases, have had an interest both clinically and research-wise in uh, the interactions between the gut, the digestive system, and the brain for, for all of my career. And um, I have added to that, to that focus the gut microbiome when it became, uh, you know, when it emerged as a, as a science about... Um, well, it's almost like now 10 years ago. And uh, so now, you know, the main topic is brain-gut microbiome interactions. Initially, I was mainly interested in digestive diseases, such as um, irritable bowel syndrome, then inflammatory bowel disease. Um, but the interest has really widened to other areas that are now considered potential brain-gut microbiome disorders, uh, like Alzheimer's disease, uh, autism spectrum disorders, Parkinson's disease. So, Awesome. Thank you for sharing. Dr. Mayer, you wrote an amazing book called The Mind-Gut Connection, which outlines how the relay of information between the gut and the mind is crucial for maintaining health and preventing disease. For you guys listening out there, I really recommend it because it is so interesting to think of our organs interacting this way. I wanted to start off simply and ask, what got you interested in studying the mind-gut connection? That's, that's an interesting question because um, for some reason, you know, I went into medical school because I had my primary interest was really on um, what at the time was called um, psychosomatic disorders or disorders where um, it was thought that, that the brain, the nervous system, the mind played a role in. And, uh, but I was always interested in the biological aspect of that, not so much the psychological. And uh, so initially I pursued this when I did my thesis in medical school on um, brain-heart interactions. So how the brain during stress regulates the blood flow through the coronary arteries. And um, then, uh, you know, my interest, my clinical interest changed um, during medical school, medical training. And I decided that uh, gastroenterology is really my main area of interest. And um, uh, yeah, then I just switched the same um, way of thinking, you know, that I had studied with the heart on the gut. And the patients, the um, 
Patients with uh, digestive diseases, many of them, or probably the majority of them, have this mind dimension or this brain dimension. Um, this was something that, you know, people, both my colleagues um, and patients were kind of reluctant to accept because it was always suspected to be blaming their symptoms on, on psychology, on something not real. Mm. Um, but, but that was really never my intention. And it's changed dramatically. And I would say it's, you know, um, I mean, the last five years, certainly since the book has come out, there's been a dramatic shift, as you probably know, that now everybody talks about, um, uh, you know, healthy gut and how the healthy gut influences your, your, your moods and your cognition. And yeah, it's, it's been an interesting way, but I'm, I'm happy when I look back, it's, it's always been my main interest why I went into medical school. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of proud that I would stick with it till, you know, throughout my career. Yeah, for sure. That sounds like an amazing path to pursue, especially after reading the book. So what sort of problems were you seeing as a gastroenterologist in the clinic, or maybe even in research that compelled you to put all of these facts and findings into one place? Well, so, you know, many patients, and I would say more female patients and male patients, have realized that connection, you know, about uh, gut feeling. So in the English language, this is a, people say that all the time, I have a gut feeling of, yeah. and people perceive stress, anxiety, depression, not just in their interactions with the world, but also they feel it in, in their gut in some ways, you know, they could be either pain, discomfort, alter bowel habits. So there has been this long recognition, you know, that, that uh, these, these two things are closely connected. So one disease that most commonly you see as a, as a gastroenterologist is, uh, is irritable bowel syndrome. So mm. where people have chronic recurrent abdominal pain um, and discomfort, uh, associated with alterations or irregularities in their bowel movements. You know, that's, it's a very common uh, disorder um, and um, very few gastroenterologists or physicians really understand it. Uh, patients are very frustrated because they have the symptoms, but nobody can tell them where they come from. Um, so that's a common one. But then, you know, you look at other gastrointestinal diseases such as uh, Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, the so-called inflammatory bowel diseases. And if you listen to patients, they tell you the same stories. You know, they tell you when their, their symptoms flared up and their inflammation came back. Um, this was at a time of uh, increased uh, stress or increased difficulties in their lives. It's not 100%, but it's a large number of, of, of patients will say that. And, and, and I know, you know, I once gave a talk like some seven years ago to a group of, of uh, patients with inflammatory bowel disease and I asked that question, how many of you believe that uh, your emotions or your stress level plays a role with your IBD symptoms? And all the hands went up. So the majority of patients knew that the physicians have long uh, you know, neglected it or even, even rejected it, that uh, it would say Inflammatory bowel disease is a real disease. It's inflammation it has nothing to do with, with, with the brain. So those two, I would say, are probably the most common. But then you go into a different area of medicine, you know, um, where people come with uh, like psychology or psychiatry, where people come with anxiety disorders, um, 
they won't say that up front, but if you ask them, do you have any gastrointestinal symptoms, almost all of them will say yes. So it, it became clear to me that anxiety, depression, irritable bowel syndrome are just two sides of the same coin, uh, dysregulation between the brain and the, and, and the gut in, in both directions. You know, it, it's not just that the brain influences the gut, it's also the gut has a major influence on, on our brain function and how we feel. Yeah, that's a really interesting connection. I would have never thought that, for example, anxiety is related to my gastrointestinal processes. Like I would never have put those two together. So it's interesting to look at it from that um, perspective. So could you briefly explain to our listeners what drives the communication between mind and body and why is it important to understand this? So, you know, if you ask this general question, mind and body, I mean, there's obviously many pathways that can send signals from the body, the heart, the gut to the brain. And the brain has, has a couple of mechanisms that um, the most important one really be the, the so-called autonomic nervous system. So anything that goes on in the, in the brain, um, any emotional state, any stress state, does not just stay within the brain, but it always sends these signals throughout the body. So many people know that their heart rate goes up or their blood pressure goes up, but not that many people think about that the gut is also affected by this. And so, you know, I've always said that any emotional state, any stress state has a mirror image in the body, in the, in the gut is the organ that's most heavily connected to the, to the brain. Then if you ask is, you know, what, what signals can, can the gut send to the brain? So there's, there's one pathway, which is uh, uh, the main nerve that connects our, our organs with the brain, and that's the vagus nerve. So th that nerve um, uh, innovates every part of the gastrointestinal tract, and anything that happens in the gut is transmitted to the brain. Then the gut has many cells. Um, immune cells has the biggest part of our immune system, has, has also its own nervous system, has many hormonal cells. And these cells either can send signals through the bloodstream to the brain, or they can send signals to the nerve endings of this vagus nerve, and then the signal goes through the nerve. So for example, when you eat a meal and you feel full after the meal, that's kind of a classical gut feeling because um, there are hormonal cells in the gut that food will stimulate to release their, their hormones. These hormones get into the bloodstream and reach the brain, but they also talk to the vagus nerve and then the vagus nerve sends the signal. So there's many other pathways like that. So serotonin is another molecule like that. So, you know, many people know what serotonin, have heard that name because our most common antidepressant medications target serotonin, uh, the reuptake into, uh, into cells. So 95% of the serotonin is located in cells in the gut and different components of, um, of food um, can stimulate the serotonin cells in the gut. And then the serotonin acts on the vagus nerve and the vagus nerve signals that to, to the brain. So immune cells, as I said, the biggest part of our immune system is in the gut. And um, uh, again, the connection between food influencing our microbes and then the microbes influencing the immune system. 
and these immune cells or their signaling molecules can act on the vagus nerve or they can get into the blood and then reach our, our brain. And for example, when you have a gastroenteritis, when you have an inflammation of the gut, um, most people feel fatigued. That's because uh, these immune cells uh, send signals to the brain and make the brain, um, you know, feel fatigued. So, it's, you know, I could give you many more examples. It's when once you start thinking about this, and I laid this out in my book, you you realize how common this mechanism is of, of gut to brain signaling. Yeah, that's that's an interesting connection um, that will really help people understand more about the body and how to better treat and counsel patients as well. So the book focuses on how our gut microbes and their interactions shape our connection to the outside world. And given the day and age we live in, people are generally afraid of microbes because they think they're bad and understandably so. I mean, with coronavirus and everything going on at the moment, how are our gut microbes different from other potentially pathogenic strains? Yeah, so the thing is, you know, it's, it's two very different things. So individual organisms, so-called pathogens, which include viruses or fungi or bacteria, um, are, are something very different from the gut microbiome, which is an ecosystem or a community where the microbes all interact with each other. It's not a single microbe. And what this interaction has a protective is first of all, very closely connected to our own body. Many of the same molecules are being used to communicate you know, between the microbes and, and, and our gut. And so they almost have the opposite function. You know, one is lives in symbiosis with us and is protective. And the other ones are specialized in warfare, attacking us and hurting us. Pathogens, it is quite interesting, are very intelligent organisms, as we can see now from the COVID-19 you know, virus, how it evades the treatment strategies by mutations. And most pathogens have that intelligence. It's really remarkable. So for example, some, they know exactly what part of the brain they have to affect in order to um, you know, alter uh, our, our health. Yeah, I would say people have, and then this has really happened already that people have changed that, that viewpoint that microorganisms are always bad for us. Uh, I would say the, 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 the bad guys are kind of the exception. You know, what happens every day in every living being um, and in nature is really this other, this symbiotic relationship between big communities of good microbes that are necessary to enhance our health and protect us against disease. And um, again, coming back to the COVID-19 situation, there is now some evidence that um, a compromised gut microbiome plays a role and increase the risk of developing um, more severe forms of, of the disease. Um, it goes back to a similar story that people that have the worst nutrition, the, the worst diet, which is usually the Western diet with high sugar, high fat, they have a compromised uh, system of gut microbiome, less diversity, less richness. That, that affects the immune system of the gut. And then when the virus comes in, the immune system overreacts to the virus and causes what's called a cytokine storm, which then um, can lead to a more severe form of the COVID-19 uh, infection. So yeah, I would say a healthy microbiome even protects you against some of these these viral diseases. 
Relating to that question, Dr. Mayer, you state in your book that the well-being of our gut microbes depends on what we eat. And that's not very surprising. I mean, that makes sense. But the real surprise comes in the next sentence, that the health of our gut microbes are programmed in the first few years of life. Does that mean that what we consume in infancy can affect our long-term health? Um, absolutely. And it's not just what, what we as an individual consumes in, in infancy. It even goes back further. So, you know, people have coined this term, the first thousand days of life, which is almost from, from conception to, you know, the, the first couple of years in life, that the health of the mother and the, both the health and the diet of the mother uh, and the obesity of the mother all have influences on the microbial community of the infant. And then the gastrointestinal tract of the newborn has almost no microbes, um, still controversy. It has almost no microbes in it at, at time of birth. And during birth, the microbes it comes in contact with when it goes through the, the birth canal. Um, so it gets the first um, programming from the mother's microbiome. And so that's where the diet of the mother comes in, you know, so, um, and then it's the interaction um, within the family um, that, that also plays a big role. So pets in the family, uh, other people in the family, exposure to natural environments like the soil or, you know, uh, anything in the natural environment. And also a very important factor that in, in Western countries, the overuse of uh, antibiotics uh, is extreme. Um, so there's, um, I, there's, there's numbers like, you know, in the first two years of life, infants are exposed to up to 10 doses of antibiotics, um, which is terrible because that compromises this formation of a healthy gut microbiome. So if, how you can come into the world, is it by C-section or is it by natural birth? C-section will compromise the health of the microbiome. But if you have all these things, a C-section and an antibiotic exposure, you, you're much more likely to be prone to allergies, um, autoimmune disorders, um, asthma, and then this increase in number of, of, of allergies that we see today that didn't exist. You know, when I went to medical school, there was no such thing as a peanut allergy, which all of a sudden, you know, so many people complain about. The good news is that programming clearly affects everybody who's going through, you know, the typical, in, in a developed country, the, the, the typical upbringing. But it doesn't mean that we are stuck with that situation completely. So our lifestyle then, as we get older, we can still influence the, the, the basic makeup of the gut microbiome, the, particularly the diversity, uh, the richness, and that happens mainly through diet, you know, through a healthy diet. It happens still the antibiotics to be very careful that you don't take antibiotics every time you get a cold or every time you get a, have a urinary tract infection. So we can still do a lot um, after that programming phase. Yes, I was going to ask about that. I mean, given the way that we all come into the world and our genetics and all of these factors that affect how uh, different we are than even in our gut microbiome, we're pretty diverse. So I'm just wondering if making certain dietary changes, like for example, adding probiotics, can affect different people the same way, given that our gut microbiome is diverse. Yeah, so this, this diversity, you know, um, our, our gut microbiomes are similar if you look at the, 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 like the family 
um, of, of microbes, the, the main families that, that we have. So there's three main groups of, of microbial families that make up you know, the gut microbiome in almost everybody. But then if you go down uh, to the species and to the strains, we're extremely different from each other. You know, there's, uh, there's only about 10% similarities between, for example, between the two of us or between you and your uh, friend. So much more diversity than in terms of our genetic makeup, you know, where we're almost identical to, to each other. And we're almost identical to, um, to our, um, you know, non, non-human primate cousins, even to mice, you know, there's a lot of similarity. So on a microbial level, we're very different from each other. And um, there has been efforts and there are ongoing efforts to um, identify or fingerprint um, this, this microbial diversity for everybody and then, and then tailor therapies or diagnosis based on that individual fingerprint. So I would say that's, um, can't really say yet, you know, how important and how um, what difference is this going to make in terms of diet? I mean, we know there's lots of evidence that a largely plant-based diet, um, like in Europe, this would be mainly the Mediterranean diet. In, in Asia, it would be something like the Okinawan diet or the traditional Japanese diet. There's almost no, no question that these diets are the best for, for everybody. So then the, then the question comes, how does this diversity then come in? You know, is, is this sort of then telling you that certain food components in a, in a plant-based diet are not as good for one person as for the other. That, that, that is possible. Um, but I think, you know, diet is something so universal that, that the components that are in diet, uh, particularly in these largely plant-based diets like fiber and, and other phytonutrients are, are, are so essential for the health of the microbiome, anybody's microbiome that I can't really see a way that you would say, okay, this person based on their microbiome testing, you know, requires this diet and this person requires this diet. I, I personally don't see that. What may come out is that one person may benefit, for example, from a probiotic more than another. So if you are deficient in a particular, you know, lactobacillus or bifidobacterium, that you may benefit more from a, a probiotic. So that is possible, yeah, I, I think. That's quite interesting, given the fact that, like you said, we are diverse in the microbiome. So it's interesting that certain things can benefit all of us, albeit on different levels. Now, regarding dietary habits, I've been seeing, and I'm sure you guys have as well, trends like drinking kombucha and probiotics skyrocketing. So how can these foods improve not only our gastrointestinal health, but our well-being in general? If you look at the consumption of fermented food, it's, it's worldwide. You know, it's, it's ancient. It goes back thousands of years that people have fermented their foods in order to preserve them. So when fermentation first started thousands of years ago, people didn't do it for their health. They did it to preserve food over longer periods of time. But you can go through any culture in the world today that uses fermented foods, different types, probably best known in in Korea, you know, um, um, with kimchi. And if you go to Korea and go to restaurants, it's amazing, you know, how prevalent that that is. But also in Russia, kefir, Japanese cuisine has many, the Chinese cuisine. So there's, the, the West has sort of been late to this. Um, 
like fermented fruits have never been that popular in the US until I don't know exactly when that started this trend, you know, probably 20, 15, 20 years ago, where all of a sudden people have discovered, you know, there's they're not only tasty, many fermented foods, but they may also be a health benefit. Unfortunately, there are unsubstantiated claims by many makers of these foods, you know, about health claims, um, because um, many of them have not been evaluated in, in scientific studies. Um, some are. This is still, you know, a, a, a growing field. I, I think I wouldn't recommend to wait for the science to come out. Um, I think if you want to add naturally fermented foods, a large variety, plant-based, fish-based, or dairy-based, it's a good way of introducing beneficial microbes to your own microbiome. And um, the more diverse that is, the, the better it is. So kind of the universal principle in the microbiome world, uh, diversity is always king, you know, beats any uh, specialization. I'm, I'm personally not a fan of the... the, the Supplemental pills, I think it's it's a better way, even though I can't prove that to you, but it's a better way to do this in the natural form. We talked about a little bit about some of the disorders that are associated with an unhappy gut, but I was wondering, how do our dietary habits impact our mental health? Yeah, as I said earlier, so this has become the, the focus of this field, this nutritional psychiatry. So let me start with the older age first. So um, you know, we, we kind of accept in the West and in, you know, in, in developed countries, this concept that with increasing age, there's a there's cognitive decline and there will be a continuous increase in Alzheimer's disease as there is, you know, in, in most societies. That That's really, that's really not the case. You know, um, the fact that we see this, that, that with increasing age, we see more and more people with a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease is because people are eating an unhealthy diet. And we now know that this unhealthy diet promotes or accelerates this low-grade inflammation in the brain and leads to degeneration, neurodegeneration, and therefore, you know, it's a big risk factor for, for then developing, particularly if you have the genes, if you have a family history of Alzheimer's disease, and the diet probably plays a big role. A mechanism like that has also been proposed for uh, depression, and um, some forms of depression have the same low-grade brain inflammation um, as the mechanism, and that form is most likely also affected by diet. Uh, and as I said, there are studies now that if somebody, if a patient with depression is on, you know, who is, who is taking antidepressant medications or getting psychological therapy, if you add um, a healthy diet to that regimen, those patients do better than patients that just take the medication, the antidepressant medication. So there's a lot of evidence from animal experiments, studies in mice, you know, which, so we know a lot more from these mouse studies, but we're now beginning to see that this plays a role in, in humans as well. And, you know, since you have an interest in, uh, in, 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 in genetics, so genetics obviously play a big role. So somebody may be on a very unhealthy diet all their lives, and never get one of these diseases. However, if you have risk genes for certain brain diseases, you know, it could be depression, anxiety, I don't think it goes to schizophrenia, but then this, this diet influence plays, can play a major role. So it's really this interaction of our diet and genetic predisposition 
that ultimately determines um, who is developing these, these diseases. Yes, and something that we all experience as well is stress that affects the gut, especially with the pandemic now. So what effect does stress have on the mind-gut connection? As, as, we, as we talked about earlier, you know, um, the, the, the brain has a mechanism, a very ancient mechanism of the, the central stress response. There are circuits in the brain that if, if your brain um, perceives that anything is stressful, either in the outside world or coming from the body, it will ring the alarm bells and will send signals through the autonomic nervous system and through you know, the system that produces cortisol to the body. And um, we know a lot about the sympathetic nervous system, which is that branch that gets mainly activated during stress. That essentially changes the gut. Um, it increases its, its leakiness, it, um, it changes its contractions, the peristalsis, the secretion, the immune cells. So essentially, if you're chronically stressed, your gut is different. Uh, you know, you, you may not know it, but you have a different gut if you're under chronic stress. That's less important if everybody of us gets stressed, you know, every once in a while from something being in a traffic jam or that's not a big deal. That's, you know, that's not going to affect your health. But if, if your stress sensitivity, so the way that your brain re- perceives something as stress, or if your stress reactivity is increased um, and you're exposed to, and, and you perceive chronic stress, then it changes your, your, your gut fundamentally. And it changes the microbes that live in the gut as well. It changes both their their environment and their habitat. But the sympathetic nervous system also can directly influence the behavior of your microbes in an unhealthy way. So yeah, stress is a, is a very important part of that story. I would say diet, stress, and emotions are the three things really that uh, you, know, you have to keep in mind when you talk about gut health um, and its effect on the body. Speaking about stress and the pandemic also leaves me wondering about immunity. And I know that a lot of people have been downing supplements and vitamins like crazy in an attempt to arm their bodies against COVID. And I know you also have a new book expected to come out in June called The Gut Immune Connection, which I am very excited to get my hands on because I'm very interested in immunology as well. But back to the question, could you tell us a little bit about how gut health and immunity are related? Yeah, so, you know, when, when you talk about uh, gut health, and I'm, I'm trying to define this in, in, in my new book. So a healthy gut is one, since we have all these systems in the gut, the, the most part of your immune system, a big part of your nervous system, a biggest part of your uh, hormonal system, they all interact closely with each other. A healthy gut is where all these systems act in, in, in synchrony and in, in harmony. If this interaction is disturbed um, and one disturbance that we now understand you know, better and better is where w- the separation of your microbes from the immune cells is compromised. So normally we have this thin mucus layer that um, completely separates the microbes from the, from the immune system. If that mucus layer is, gets thinner and less uh, protective, then microbes come in direct contact with immune cells in the gut. 
and then trigger this whole cascade of uh, first immune system activation at the gut level, and then it can then it triggers the release of these main inflammatory molecules, cytokines, which then, if it keeps going, these cytokines get into your bloodstream, can circulate throughout the circulation, can get into your brain. If this this system that normally maintains gut health, and a big part of that is as simple as it sounds, you know, this insulating layer between the immune system and 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 and, and the microbes, the mucus layer. If, if that gets compromised, then it triggers this whole inappropriate activation of your of your immune system in a in a in a chronic way, and um, so that's what happens in the in the uh, uh, in the adult. And it the causes for this can be twofold. One is we talked about stress, so stress can affect this this insulating layer. If you're chronically stressed, your gut becomes leakier. Um, but also if you're eating unhealthy, your microbes, your fewer microbes that produce, that participate in this mucus production. So that's what happens in the adult. That's how, I, um, you know, this close immune interaction with our gut happens. But there's also another phase, which is early on in life, you know, where our immune system gets programmed, just like our gut microbiome gets programmed. And, um, where we are exposed to good and bad microbes um, when, you know, when this uh, gut microbiome develops. And if this learning phase of the immune system is compromised early on in life, for example, if we do not come, if the infant, the baby does not come in contact with any benign bacteria from, you know, from, from pets or from plants or from playing in, 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 in the garden, um, then, um, then the immune system is not as competent in differentiating between good and bad. So then it, it leads to a situation like these autoimmune disorders or these allergies would overreact to things that shouldn't be overreacting. So at, at both times in life, the microbes play a role in this. The end result is that in both cases, both with the allergies and um, with the um, low-grade immune activation, there's an overreaction of the immune system, an inappropriate overreaction. So the, the normal regulatory mechanisms are compromised. And um, I would say, you know, this is the most common problem, health problem that we're facing in, in the modern world. Um, it's much less the case in, um, in underdeveloped or developing countries like, you know, India or uh, Southeast Asia, um, but, in the developing world and developed world, it's, uh, it is the main cause for our health problems in, in the long term. That's very interesting. Thank you for clarifying that for us. And relating to that, Dr. Mayer, you've no doubt heard about the book called How Not to Die by Dr. Michael Greger, who, if you guys don't know, is the founder of nutritionfacts.org. In it, he describes a few foods like turmeric and berries to improve gut health and prevent disease from gastrointestinal related cancers. Why and how is it effective? Yeah, so this has to do, and again, as I dedicate, you know, a major section in, in my book on this, um, there's substances, the so-called, you know, phytonutrients, that are many con contained in plants, um, in the seeds of plants, in the leaf of plants, in the, in the fruits like berries, 
And it's a group of molecules, there's about 10,000 of these, they're called um, polyphenols. Um, they're often referred to in the lay press as antioxidants. And that comes from the fact that these substances, if you isolate them and you put them in a test tube with, uh, with isolated cells, they function like antioxidants. But if you eat them, these products, um, either naturally or in uh, supplement form, they're not being absorbed. They're such big molecules. They're not, they can't be absorbed in your small intestine. So they go all the way down to the microbes. And then they influence the microbes in a, in a beneficial way. Uh, the, it's food for the microbes, but it's also uh, the microbes break them down into smaller molecules, which then can be absorbed in, the, in your large intestine. And they have anti-inflammatory effects. They have health-promoting effects. So plants use these same molecules. I mean, this is sort of the, one of the most fascinating things. Plants produce these molecules for their own health. So they protect themselves against uh, drought, against uh, UV light from the sun. They protect themselves against pests and insects. And, and, the, and the plants put them into the, into the parts of the plant that they want to protect the most, which are the seeds. Um, and the fruits, so for reproduction. So that's why, you know, many spices come from the seeds of plants or, or the fruits. They're also in the, in the roots of the plant uh, because the roots, the plant uh, interact with microbes in the soil. So if you look around where those anti-inflammatory foods come from, so they all fall into this category, you know, these, these polyphenols and berries, particularly the dark berries, black with black, dark blue and black color have the highest concentrations, but um, spices have even higher concentrations. Um, so you can, you know, what, what I promote in my book as well is you can select your, your, your dishes and your cuisine based on maximizing the content of, of these, of these health-promoting anti-inflammatory molecules. I mean, they do more than anti-inflammatory uh, effects, or also have anti-cancer effects and uh, you can almost say these are the molecules that nature has developed for all its living creatures from plants to animals to optimize health. Something that I've been wondering about this entire time when we were talking about the mind-gut connection is gut feelings. And this is something that we've, we all have experience with for sure. And I was just wondering, are our gut feelings evidence based? Are they real feelings or are they some byproduct of our evolution as humans? You know, the, the conscious awareness of feelings um, that somebody would say, I have a feeling um, is something uniquely human. But it's, as humans, this self-consciousness, self-awareness of feelings is, is uniquely uh, human. Just imagine, you know, we talked about the vagus nerve, we talk about these trillions of signals that go from the gut to your brain every second, even when you sleep. 99.9% .9 of these we don't perceive consciously. You know, we, we, we can read a newspaper, we can have a conversation, even when we talk now, each of us receives, you know, a bombardment of these signals to our brain. But that doesn't mean they don't do anything in the, in, in the, in, in the brain. So they shape how we feel. And, um, you know, when, when, when people use that expression, I have a gut feeling that something bad is going to happen, or, you know, th that's definitely something that when we become aware of some of these signals, let's say if, if, if you say you, you have a gut feeling. So I personally believe it starts in the brain. 
the brain detects there's something potentially dangerous. Before you even know it, it sends a signal down to the gut. The gut responds and the gut microbes respond to that signal within milliseconds. And then they change their signals back to the brain. And what you experience then as your gut feeling is what comes back from, from your gut and your microbes that's then detected by the, uh, by the brain. And, you know, it's interesting when I wrote the book, I tried to pay attention to how common that expression is. Um, I have a gut feeling or I made a gut-based decision. I mean, there's not a day that you can't read at least five people in the, in the, in the news that use that expression. So, you know, it's, um, it's, I, I think it's something very fundamental. And there is this part that we are consciously aware of, um, but that's just a tiny fraction because most of it happens and influences how we feel in general and, and how our emotional state is. If you're fatigued or if we uh, alert or, you know, if, 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 if you feel like people use that term brain fog, um, that's another one of those sensations that probably has a big input from, from the gut um, affecting brain function. That's so interesting to think about it as the realization of feeling, being aware of what's happening in your gut and realizing that this is the mind-gut connection and action. I think that's pretty cool. So before we run out of time today, I wanted to ask you something that I and my listeners had on our minds this entire week. And that is, of course, what are your recommendations for maintaining a healthy gut and preventing disease? Well, I mean, the two main things I already mentioned, it's, um, it's, you know, a healthy diet, and it's a healthy mind. I think those are the two things that people can do. The diet is often easier done than the healthy mind, because the healthy mind requires practice and efforts, you know, there's techniques now, like mindfulness, mindfulness-based stress reduction that everybody can do. There's apps for that. You can do it online. Um, it works better if you start out in a group. But, uh, you know, coming back to this effort, so all of us, our anxiety levels are increased in the world in general. Um, and it's not just because of COVID. It's um, the, the whole uh, social media interconnectedness and we're bombarded by signals constantly that we in the past just didn't know about. Our, our mind and our emotional system is extremely stressed. I think to learn to filter that out and um, realize how important these influences from the mind, from the brain are on gut health, on the leakiness of the gut and on um, the health of the microbes is, is, is a first step. The second step, obviously, as we talked about, is the diet. Um, and you mentioned uh, Michael Greger. I'm a big fan of his uh, publications as well. So it's definitely done a really good service to, to the lay public in, in terms of promoting healthy evidence-based uh, strategies. My promotion is, and that's, you know, um, it's based on a lot of research, which is summarized in, in, in my second book as well, that a largely plant-based diet will be the best thing that you can do for your gut health. And the reason is, is because of these two types of components that a plant-based diet provides. One is these polyphenols or, you know, antioxidants. And the other one is the thousands of fiber molecules that is food for a diverse microbiome. So if you stick to these two things, a healthy mind, a healthy diet, I, I think it, it will help. Ultimately, you know, just as a, as, a, as a comparison. So our brain in evolution has learned to live with these 
trillions of signals coming from the gut every millisecond throughout our lives. It has learned it because it's learned to focus attention on just a few things and not on this chatter. I think what we have to learn in our life interacting with, with the modern world is to do the same thing, to not be affected by the chatter created by, by social media, ever increasing speed and, and uh, briefness of signals, which ultimately become meaningless, but they still you know, affect us. So what mindfulness does, it shifts your attention to much fewer things, um, living more in the moment, not worrying constantly about what could happen in the future. So I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a good um, analogy, you know, that what evolution has taught our brains to do, that selective attention on a few things that are really important for us in the moment, that we kind of learn these, these strategies as well, dealing with our, uh, you know, the things that go on uh, in our environment in terms of signals from all kinds of sources. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective that we have to adjust what we're putting in, but also to filter out all the extras in our world. So that's all the time that we had for today. Thank you so much, Dr. Mayer, for joining us on The Genie. It was an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you so much again for having me on this. Um, I'm, I'm happy to be able to contribute um, to the success. Um, wish you all the best with this, with this podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. If you guys want to learn more about the connection between the mind and the gut, be sure to check out the Mind Gut Connection by Dr. Mayer. It's available on Amazon and also the Gut Immune Connection out later in June. Thank you guys as well for listening along to today's episode. We hope that you guys enjoyed it. And as usual, make sure you subscribe on our website, www.thegenie.com to learn more about guests and episodes. And you can also find us on Instagram and your favorite streaming services. This has been your host, Senma, and you are watching The Genie Podcast with Dr. Amran Mayer. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.